It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome back, everybody, behind the Braves. I'm Ricky Mass from MLB.com alongside my, my partner here, Greg McMichael. Greg, they didn't kick us off yet. We made it back for a second week. Yeah, it's uh, pretty amazing. Pretty excited about that, too. So we're back for another week, and, and we've got somebody special today. We certainly do. First of all, before we get to that, just want to thank all of you. for We got a lot of positive feedback this week uh, on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram stories, the whole deal, uh, some good reviews on, on Apple, on iTunes. So, And if you haven't already reviewed, go ahead and click that five-star rating. Uh, leave us a positive review if you'd like. Uh, if you hate us, uh, don't leave a review, but go <laughs> ahead and hit that five stars anyways. Just do us a solid, please. Uh, but uh, this week, uh, we're really pleased. Uh, we've got Alex Anthopoulos on this week. We recorded this a couple weeks ago, so pre, pre-clinch. Um, as, as this episode comes out today, we are a day before the Braves returning to the postseason for the first time. So we figured it was a perfect time to, to share this interview with, with Alex. And as for the moves he's made, I mean, he's a little less than a year in. It's, it's listen, we can all sit back and, and armchair it a little bit and, and judge with this move, that move. But overall, I, I'm, I think you'd have to be pretty pleased with every move he's made so far. Yeah, I think the worst thing that somebody can do is come in and, and just – throw everything out you know there was a lot of good things here in this organization there were a lot of great players so I think the best thing and really what mostly impressed me was the fact that he kind of sat back and watched for a little bit he wanted to evaluate and I think that's very wise obviously because you need to know what you have and even though he was with the Dodgers in the National League you still you don't need you need to see guys on a daily basis. I think it would have been very easy to get caught up in when we looked at the trade deadline, there were some things happening with some high profile players. Could have done something early on in spring training, but instead he let the young guys experience, uh, get their feet wet, um, you know, play in some games and then just kinda of watch. And then he in, ended up adding a few pieces here and there. When I look back at the, some of the trades and you think about the ones that uh, that we probably paid attention to the most with Gossman and O'Day from from Baltimore. Brock was traded from Baltimore. That was a piece of the bullpen that was added. Gossman was obviously has been a great trade for us for um, kind of solidifying the rotation after McCarthy. McCarthy was doing well. I think he was six, he's six and three, but he ended up getting hurt and and uh, we really need somebody to fill that spot. Gossman came in and did a great job. But, uh, you know, you think about Lucas Duda, and he came in. We needed some power off the off the bench later in the season. We had it earlier in the season with with what um, some guys were doing. And um, Venters. Venters yeah, along with Venters, Brock. Yeah, yeah and that, that cost us nothing but future considerations. Duda was future considerations. But um, 
you know, there obviously there was the big trade with the Dodgers. We know that that was driven a lot by payroll. We wanted to get Kemp's uh, payroll off the books, so there was some trade there. We ended up, ended up with Charlie Culberson and McCarthy, and Culberson's been a clutch guy off the bench for us, and now he's uh, he's been filling in for Dansby. We don't know what Dansby's future is as of today, but we know that Culberson did the same thing for the Dodgers last postseason. He ended up taking him to the World Series with clutch hitting and uh, played and filled in for them. So it looks like he might be doing the same thing for us. Um, so there, there's been some pieces that have been very important to our success throughout the year, and those have all come from Alex and his group. And um, I think the biggest moves are yet to be made, and that's probably going to be in the offseason. You go into the offseason knowing exactly what holes need to be filled, and you have the resources to fill all right. of them, be it free agents, trades, whatever. I mean, this, this offseason is going to be – fascinating and i think i think we're definitely going to be catching up with alex again at some point this off season on, on behind the braves right and it is a great time to be a braves fan oh I mean, it's you the have best, to admit yeah. and we've been saying this for months i mean we came out of the gate first place acuna comes up starts playing well the team's playing well the young guys are starting to to gel the veteran guys are playing marcakis is having a career year freddie freeman's having a career year albies is is all world and then Acuna comes up, he's all world. And so, uh, and then Camargo starts off slow because he missed spring training, he was hurt. And then all of a sudden, he's caught fire the last half of the season. There is nothing negative about what's going on with the Atlanta Braves organization right now. And like you said, it, with that being said, everything is looking very bright in the future, in the near future and also in the long-term future with these young stars that we have. Absolutely. And I, as we've already said, I think we've got the right guy at the helm to, to guide us in whatever direction this postseason takes us for the offseason. I think we've got the right guy and it's great having him on and true to it. Like I, what I would expect from any general manager, it was, you know, he's on a schedule. He got here right <laughs> on time, uh, like uh, right at the on the dot at the moment he was supposed to be here, and we made sure we were we were done at the moment he needed to be done because he had other things to to go do. But he was very generous with his time. Uh, we we got to learn a little bit about him growing up in Canada, uh, how he fell in love with the game as an Expos fan, doing anything he could to break in into the game, and then of course we had to you and him had to have a discussion about pitching. <laughs> yeah, you got to have that, sure. right? Yeah. All right, so anyways, and as we said, this was recorded a couple weeks ago pre-clinch, but I think you're going to enjoy hearing from uh, Braves general manager Alex Anthopoulos, and here he is. 2-1 pitch. Fly ball, left field, playable. Ronald Acuna, fittingly, he's got it. The Atlanta Braves are National League East champions. All right, Alex, thanks for uh, joining us here behind the Braves at uh, Alumni Lounge at SunTrust Park. So first time in here? Yeah, really nice. I'm kind of just trying to take in the uh, sights and sounds <laughs> over here. It's very nice. Yeah, so we tried to provide something. We have such a great contingency of alumni that uh, 65 here in Atlanta, 250 nationwide. So we wanted to do something for them. We did have a pool table in here, but it kind of it kind of uh, doubles as a space for some A-list members that kind of right. do some things. So this is just a great place for them to hang out, catch up. Ideally, in the future, we'd have uh, meetings with teams, former teams, Maybe show some old footage, yeah. some things like that. Yeah, it would be kind cool. of a great place to start. Well, hey, we want to be respectful of your time. We appreciate you joining up, joining Ricky and I and um, talking a little bit about uh, what's going on with you. And obviously the team, these are very exciting times. Yeah. We're a lot of exciting. And the one, th one reason why I know that that's 
that's uh, things have changed around here. Is that I'm, you know, of course my office is up and up on the TL second floor, and and I'm sitting there in my office, and I hear salespeople talking to clients, to the fans, right. and they're calling the players by their nicknames. Oh, they're wow. they're talking cool. about, I can't believe that guy didn't pitch that well last night. Did you see that pitch? I mean, so they're – cool. <laughs> yeah, they're in it. They're into oh, it, yeah, which yeah. is outstanding. Yeah, so the fans love that. Obviously, um, things are going really well, and you can't be any happier about, about uh, where the team is right now. No, there's no doubt. I mean, I didn't know what to expect coming in. Um not that there were expectations for 2018, but you knew there was a talented club, and you you know you're brought here to to uh, to get the team going and winning. And like I said many times, there's been a ton of great work done before I even got here with all these players and this talent. So um, we're just gonna let these guys play. And uh, Snit, the coaches, obviously the players are the ones doing it. Um, can't say enough about them. And just to see the reaction, I check the attendance all the time too. I know it's you know there was obviously last year. Um, new ballpark, good attendance, and we didn't really do much in the off season to add. It was a bit of a tumultuous off season, so um, you know I I care as much about the organization as I do work worrying about players on on the field. So seeing the organization thrive both on the field, off the field, uh, is really exciting. And now I'd say you know mid season the expectations changed, rightfully so. Teams playing well, and all of a sudden trade deadline and. And the stress of games and wanting to win, it's fun. I mean, that's why you're in sports, right, to, to be in this position. So it's been great. And when I go on the road and we're playing Giants and some fan comes up to me with big Braves gear and he's like, chop on, you know. And I'm like, man. <laughs> so all the way on the West Coast. So um, pretty exciting, though. But it's a great time. And just seeing how everyone's starting to come together is really exciting to see. Well, I know that we we would love to get get to know you a little bit better. I know the fans where we we've heard all the lines about baseball and about your career and and uh, you know we know that you were born in Montreal. Yep. Right. And uh, started with the Expos. You actually were starting your career as I was ending my career. I remember so. seeing you pitch. Oh, okay. Well, I, I wasn't very good that year. <laughs> but, uh, I was better a little earlier. Yeah. So uh, and then on to Toronto. But spent a lot of your time obviously growing up in Canada. Were you an Expos fan or were you Blue Jays fan? Yeah. So I was an Expos fan growing up. Okay. There's a there's definitely a rivalry Montreal Toronto. Um, Toronto is like the New York City of Canada. It's you know, obviously it's huge and it's all there and if you grew up in Montreal and probably some of the other cities, there's a resentment. And that probably comes from hockey as well. The NHL teams there, the Canadians and the Leafs. And um, you're just kind of brought up and raised that way to hate everything Toronto. And um, so I did watch some Blue Jays games because they were on TV a lot more often. I watched Braves the most because they were on TV all the time. And the Montreal Expos, their TV deal, I mean, I may have seen them on TV five times a year, whereas the Braves were on every night and they were a great team and they were a fun team. So... In terms of the team I watched the most growing up, it was it was the Braves. Then I'd probably say Cubs because we had the Cubs channel. And uh, then I'd probably say Toronto, Montreal. But going to the ballpark, going to Olympic Stadium, uh, that's where I really caught the bug. And it was really when the team started getting competitive again. And I th- that's something that has really impacted me because I like sports. I like, I like baseball, but I wasn't deep into it until the, the team started to get better. And I'd say 1992, Felipe Lou came on board. And the team started to show signs of life, and I just got hooked. And I was going to as many games as I could and following and getting every bit of information. And from there, I just caught the bug. And I didn't think I'd work in sports or work in baseball. But as I got older and, you know, it was 20, 21, um, finally by the time I turned 23, I said I want to go after this and do something that I love. How did you first – I mean, what was the first way you broke in into baseball? I mean, it's it's – 
I mean, me working in it, I know how hard it is oh, to, yeah. to get in. It's just you gotta you got to catch a break here and there. How did you first break in? Yeah, I always tell people um, everyone's got a story, how they get into sports. You don't just get up one day and apply and you just get a job. It just doesn't work that way. Every I bet you every single person that works for a sports franchise has a story of how they got their foot in the door. And I was the same way. And being Canadian from Montreal, you know, not having to play where I played just schools and things like, like that, but didn't play pro ball. I didn't think for a minute. Um, I had the opportunity to do it, but I loved it. I loved evaluating or trying to evaluate and learn. So I applied. I called every team for internships. I got one from the Miami Marlins at the time. And then they revoked it about a week later once they realized being Canadian, having to get a visa, work in the States as an intern. It's going to be a lot more complicated than they thought. So um, kept ba banging on doors. And then finally the Montreal, Montreal Expos came up with one. And it's basically trying to open, having, uh, dealing with the player's mail. It was just a way to get your foot in the door. And they didn't have any structure. They just kind of threw me in the clubhouse and said, deal with it. And um, I just decided, look, I'm, I'm capable of a lot more than this, but I'm just glad to be in the, 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 um, the environment. And I'm going to do the, be the best male guy they've ever seen. So I worked hard. Um, at night, I would sit with the scouts and try to learn how to scout, evaluate, write reports. And a guy in media relations quit in the middle of the year. They needed somebody. I was there, right place, right time. I think I kept my mouth shut, and I, I worked hard, so they gave me that job too. And then at the end of it, the international scouting director asked me to go down to Florida and uh, work at his he – he basically had an academy where he bought in a lot of the international players, and I did that for about a year and a half, but that was great because I was on the field every single day, and they take BP, sim games, they were in a league. Um, just being on the field every day was really good from a developmental standpoint, and I got to go to the Dominican, see some tryouts. I got to go to Japan, and – when I was in Florida at night, I'd go see Florida State League games when I was done with my job. So um, I took Spanish classes to get better. I went to scout school. I paid my own way. But it wasn't to impress anybody. I just couldn't get enough of it. I loved it. I called the scouting bureau. I had them send all the video they had of every draft, every draft pick. And I poured through those, and I'd watch video and talk to scouts and ask them about what about so-and-so and so-and-so and, -so and look at swings and deliveries. And um, I loved every bit of it. So... Things finally broke for me in 2002 where I got a full-time job as a coordinator of, of a amateur uh, with, uh, with Montreal. How, how long into it before you started getting paid for any of that work? I would imagine the, the sorting mail probably wasn't the highest yeah, paid Yeah, that, right? that was <laughs> so. I had a job at a financial firm, and then the mail thing came up. And, again, it was just give me a pass through you in the club. I say, look, player's mail is there. If you want to try to work with them, coordinate with them to go through it, get them to sign stuff, send it off. So I'm dealing with Vlad Guerrero, Rondell White, Michael Barrett, just all these guys, and I'm intimidated as heck when I walk in, but I try to play it cool. Um, and I didn't get paid for that. The media relations job was a, a minimum wage, which may have been $7 an hour, $8 an hour at the time. And um, then I went to intern in the United States in Florida. I couldn't get paid there, but they basically put me up in a hotel and gave, gave me meals, but there was no salary. So I had some money that I'd saved, but about a year and a half, I was starting to get light on my savings, and I didn't know how much longer I could keep doing it, and then things finally broke for me. So um, I always tell people when they ask me, grind it out. You better love it for sure because it's not about the money, and um, you better love it. And if you stick with it long enough, you do a good enough job, you have good attitude, something should break for you. Well, I have, uh, I have a quote here from you. I read a couple articles, and one thing that kind of struck me, something that you said, it says pursue things that you have a passion for, then have humility. That's the two things I think in a way in, in any walk of life will take you incredibly far. And what struck me is that obviously we're in an industry where there, humility is not a term that we talk about a lot. 
But where did that come from? Was that from your mom, your dad? Uh, you know, why why did you why do you think that's so important? You know what? It's yeah, it's interesting. I and I really I I mean I not to I mean to hear you say it again. I didn't realize I said it, but it's I think it's so true. Those are the two things. Um, I think in this game, and really I'd say in any, in any walk of life, um, one it's hard, right? We make mistakes. Whether you're you're a player, you fail a lot. If you're in an office, a scout, an evaluator, you make a lot of mistakes, and. You work with people so much and so many hours a day. People want to work with a good good teammate. You want to be a good teammate. You want to be someone that... So um, my philosophy was, and it maybe it was just observing my surroundings. I don't know that... You know, my parents never sat me down and told me those things, but maybe it just came to me or observing the game. Um, there was a respect for the people that came before you, people that had more time in the game. And I remember when I first got the job with the Montreal Expo, so I meet with a guy. I'm so excited. And... I think Chuck Knobloch had just been traded to the New York Yankees, so that would have been 2000, if I have it right. And I remember talking to one of the guys about, wow, about that trade. And you could tell he had no time. You didn't want, he did not want to hear my opinion or thoughts. <laughs> yeah. And hey, you're, it was, you're the mailroom guy. What? Yeah. Why are you talking and it was just like exactly. And I'm like, I get it, you know. Yeah. And I just realized pretty fast, like, shut your mouth. Old time scout told me you got two ears, one mouth, and it stuck with me. And um, you know, I, I think it's um, it's one of those things that I've been around a lot of people, as you know, especially when you start at the bottom and you work your way up. I've seen so many talented individuals that should have been CEOs and GMs and all anything you want to say, and they were so talented and they were really arrogant, sense of entitlement, and they just nobody wanted to work work with them. So um, that's not to say talent is won't matter, but especially when you're starting out, having some humility, being willing to learn. Uh, I think it's huge. I think it's going to get you a lot farther now. At some point, your talent's going to have to take you to, you want to get to be a d director and so on. You're going to have to have some skills. But if you're starting out in sports, being somebody somebody that people want to work with, um, and ha and if you enjoy it and you love what you do each day, th the element that you're going to bring is everyone's going to see it and you're going to want to come to work and you're going to work hard. You're going to get better just because you want to be there. I remember with the Montreal Expos when I finally got that job, as a as a coordinator for the for the draft, I was in the office seven days a week. Not because I was told to, not because I was trying to impress. Team would be on the road, and I would come in on Saturday, Sunday. I couldn't wait to get up and go in the office and be in the office and watch video and read scouting reports. It was so much fun for me, and I think as a result of that, because of I was I felt so strongly about it, I got better. You know, I made me. I went home at night. I'd watch CDs and videos of draft guys, and again, not to impress or to try to climb. I just love the fact that I was learning every single day. And then I'd go down and watch batting practice and swings and ask coaches. And that's the amazing part about this game is that you never stop learning. And you'll continue to make mistakes. And um, to this day, I still find it a ton of fun when you continue to get better. Well, you mentioned the, the rivalry there. Growing up in Montreal with, with Toronto, as you said, the, the New York of, of Canada was – I always tell people if they ask me about working in sports, I was like, well, if you're trying to break in, first of all, you better be willing to go anywhere and, and do anything wherever you end up going. So was that transition for you as a, as a Montreal guy, going from Montreal to Toronto, was there at least part of it that was a little bit hard to swallow? Yeah, you know what? Not really because uh, there's a few components to this. So one, I went to school just outside Toronto. So I'd already been exposed. I went to university just outside Toronto. So I had a lot of my good friends from college were there. And... Um, the Montreal X was at the time when I left. When I left them to go to, to the Blue Jays, there was a lot of talk about they were owned by by MLB, and there was talk that they were going to move. So they were a year or two away from that they were going to move, and I knew that was going to happen. And I was concerned with what happened 
with my internship with Miami. Now, they were telling me, we're going to bring you to D.C. We want you here. You're going to move fast. You're going to climb. They tried to talk me out of taking the job with Toronto in a, in a good way, meaning they wanted me to stay, and it felt great. But I said, look, I've already been through this with getting a visa and so on, and you guys can't guarantee that I'll be allowed to go work in D.C. So if this job is available for me in Toronto, I need to jump it and you know take it. And it was a step back. It was a cut in pay. Um, I'd been promoted to assistant director of, of amateur um, with Montreal. I was going backwards to do a- amateur scouting coordinator with Toronto. That was the job they had. Um, I was getting a raise in Montreal. This was going to be a little bit of a cut in pay. But I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. And I always felt like it was a pretty simple thought. I never chased the money in this game, and it worked out for me. And um, I wanted to proceed. It was the right move. I felt like this was a good opportunity, good organization. And I, didn't, I put in so much time to get a job and finally get going in my career. And if something had happened going to D.C. where I couldn't have gone over there, I would have been crushed. So um, I explained this to my bosses um, with the Montreal Expos, and they understood but weren't thrilled that I was going to leave, but they also understood the position I was in. And it ended up being a great move for me because four years later I became AGM and four years after that GM. And um, I just got into this thing, wanted to work in sports, work in baseball, put scouting reports in a computer, and things just moved fast for me. That's great. Well, um, I want to, because we're, we're kind of limited with our time, I'd love to be able to transition into some kind of current topics about the team, and, and I would be uh, upset, and I know Ricky would probably too, if we didn't talk a little bit sure. about um, about the team and, and pitching in general. Um, as you know, you know, I, I pitched in the bullpen my whole career, and, and there's, a, there's a philosophical shift that I see nowadays with how starters – bullpen uh, pitchers are being used and I'd love to know uh, how you see from an organizational philosophy are we going to continue with the trend or is this something that you're still evaluating but for me uh, in today's game the the shift has gone from starting pitchers no longer becoming workhorses no longer becoming marathon runners so to speak they're now similar to sprinters like you'll always view a bullpen pitcher as a sprinter and a starting pitcher as a, as a marathoner, now it seems we're grooming a bunch of sprinters. And so there's this uh, limit on pitches, 100 pitches. It seems to be ends up, ends up being five innings, and except for Fulton which goes nine. That's, that's more of a rarity. But even if, if you look across the league, guys are going five innings, five and a half innings, you know, uh, six at the most. And for us, I know that it seems like to me, and I'd like to get your perspective on a couple things. When it started with Tommy John's happening with the health of pitchers, the shift started kind of amp- ramping up. And then also now with a statistical philosophy on this whole third time around, we don't like to see starting pitchers go third, third time around. Do you see this trend going to be our organizational philosophy, or do you see are, – are we, we going to modify that a little bit? Yeah, so there's no doubt the game is trending that way. That's fact. Um, I'd say the Braves are not. And that's not to say that we're not – there will be times that we think there's value to doing that. Um, but And this is you know, this is speaking for myself, obviously. When I took the job with Toronto, we drafted a ton of young arms, a ton of high school arms. And young GM, young in experience, still am to an extent. But, um, you know, I was right there with trying to watch innings and, and so on. And we really protected guys. We shut guys down early, shut guys down in September and so on. And guys still broke. And I look around the game, guys like Matt Harvey, 
guys like Matt Moore, uh, Alex Cobb. I mean, these are organizations that you really you respect, and um, guys that were being shut down across the game, innings limits, 10%, 20% more innings, 30% more innings, and guys were still sh- getting shut down, still having problems. So on the one hand, I look back, and I, you know, I think this was um, going after 2014, basically said we're not going to have a number, a hard number, that says, hey, you threw 120 innings last year, we're going to cap you at 141. 145 or whatever it might be because that didn't work and we have just as many if not more injuries than we've ever had and that wasn't the solution now I don't know what the solution is um, but that it was easy to say well you can't get hurt if you don't pitch so you're protecting yourself whether it's from your owner from media from fans and I remember we had guys like Aaron Sanchez Noah Syndergaard all kinds of guys we shut them down a certain amount of innings and so on and these guys were healthy they were strong they were feeling good and we just did it because we felt like, hey, we need to cap the numbers and so on. And we still had guys that broke. Brandon Morrow we, we really were close with, and he broke down. So um, I definitely altered my philosophy in that standpoint. So we don't have a, a number. We don't have a, a cap. What we will do is we'll watch guys start to start. Um, if you look at from a development standpoint, we have guys like Dom Chidi and Dave Wallace that basically oversee all of it. Our guys go pretty deep in, in the games. And I can tell you I love it when a guy goes deep into a game because – Third time through the order, is there something to it? Absolutely, no doubt about it. It makes sense. and But I do think the eye test is part of it as well. So if you're watching a guy and he's rolling and his stuff is good and some guys just, they're on that day, as you know, and third time through the order, that you're not a computer. Otherwise, we'd have computers that run the game. I'd say, boom, third time through the order, you're out. Now, if you see a guy go five scoreless, but there's line shots all over the place, walking guys, he just doesn't look good. And we'll say it all the time. Hey, the line looks a lot better than he pitched. Then you start thinking, okay, third time through the order, they might really get him. We may have been lucky. So that, that's where the feel comes into it. But I think during the season, you try to do third time through, through the order, pull guys, your bullpen's going to get crushed. And we monitor, you know, and I, I'm sure you guys did, did too, but we monitor how many times guys are up in the bullpen. So... The fan base will only see the box scores and see the innings that they pitch, but we'll monitor how many times they're up and hot. You know, if it's once a game, twice a game. If it's, We might have a guy who's been up four days in a row and only pitched one of those games. So the fan base says, wow, this guy's only pitched one out of the last four. Well, he's been up hot four in a row. We better have him down today. So you want to start having guys go five innings over the course of six months? Your bullpen is, yeah. is going to die. And the way relievers are getting more and more expensive right now um, – I think it's a hard thing to do. I think in September you can do it. I think in the playoffs you can do it because of the off days. I mean, you don't use a seven-man bullpen or eight-man bullpen in the playoffs. You see three, four, maybe five relievers that you go to and use them all the time because you have all those off days in, in between. So um, when we have a starter like a Gosman or a Fulty and so on that can go seven innings, eight innings, nine innings, w- what a good feeling and how good you feel your bullpen set up because we really monitor the health of our relievers. It's one thing everyone talks about, the, the volatility of bullpens. And, well, relievers are good one year, bad the next. Well, if you actually look at how much they're worked and how much they're up and down, there's probably something to the fact that maybe they get overworked in a certain year. And it doesn't make any sense to just say, ah, well, you're just a reliever. You're going to be good one year, bad the next. There's something to it, and I think the way they're used and the way they're, they're worked is certainly part of that. So, um, again, tight ball, ball game. Uh, some guys' numbers third time through might be really bad. You have a fresh bullpen. They line up well. Maybe you, you, you go with it. You have a thin bullpen you got to stretch a little bit. Or maybe you go, you know, if a guy ends up getting on, then you you pull him. But I just don't think it's black and white. And if anything, I'd rather have guys that can go deep into the games to save the pen. 
when you first took the job last winter, I remember one of the things you talked about that you were big on was defense. You want to put as strong of a defense on the field as possible. And obviously, you know, every team, you want to have the strongest defense you can. But how important is the defense to, especially when you've got young pitchers, developing that confidence in young pitchers that, hey, I can pitch to contact. Like, I don't have to try to make a guy swing and miss every time. I mean, is that a big part of your emphasis on defense is the development of young pitching? No, no doubt. And part of it is just to keep these guys on the mound. So part of this was from my experiences in Toronto. We had a lot of guys break down. And, again, I'd be more concerned with a guy throwing 105 in five innings than a guy throwing 120 in eight innings, right? It's not even close. just the workload, the ta- taxing. And you guys have seen it. You don't make plays behind a guy. You don't catch the ball. It may not show up as an error, but bad route, bad defender. That that guy starts to grind 25 pitch inning 30 and they're doing that inning after inning when you walk guys and so on. Um, that's where we'll we'll probably put a little more emphasis on the ability to frame and to steal steal strikes. Um, and not to say the other components aren't important. Game calling, deep blocking, throwing is all important too. But this all comes back to the health of the players. And when we and you'll also see us move guys in. We'll put a six starter in there, a spot starter, just to give guys a blow, give guys a day. And we started doing that in Toronto, and for the most part, we had really good health. And I think, again, now, I don't want to <laughs> jinx anything, but we've had pretty good health as well. And I think part of it is rather than having a hard and fast rule about the number of innings that you, you throw and so on, you, you check on guys, how they're feeling. Maybe they're going to skip a bullpen the next time through. Uh, maybe they're going to go light. Maybe they'll give them a day. Um, they need to communicate with you too, and they need to communicate with, with your staff. But defense is the backbone of all that because that's what leads to long innings, and that's where a guy now comes out after four innings rather than six. Now the bullpen's being used. They're not available the next day. And just the, the carryover effect, it just, and it's hard to quantify it, but it's real. So um, and beyond that, from an obvious standpoint, we have a good defense is going to help 12 guys or more on the staff. Um, it's a better brand of ball to watch. I mean, I think it's embarrassing. When you have a bad defensive club, I can't stand it. It's hard to watch. It's embarrassing. I think it's a reflection of the organization. It's a reflection of the GM. It's a reflection of the people putting the team together. So don't get me wrong. I know the offensive side is important, and you need to balance that. You can't just have light-hitting guys that can really play defense and not score runs because – when you don't, when you're not scoring runs, everyone thinks the team looks flat and dead. So well, that was the American League for years. You know, all offense, no defense, and just got got getting up there bashing the ball. And nationally, we felt like we played better defense, and and uh, it was we felt like it was a, a better brand of baseball, like you said. Yeah, it's a lot more fun to watch, and also, I mean, the game's changing with power and so on. But guys' ability to put the ball in play, I think, is huge, especially come playoff time. Um, you know, when you're playing tight games and you want to pitch and play defense, you need guys that can put the ball in play. So man on third, less than two outs. The big power hitter who's going to swing and miss, it doesn't really do much for you at the time. So, sure, if someone's going to hang a pitch and they're going to hit it out, great. But especially you get to the playoffs and you're facing elite staffs, elite bullpen arms with swing and miss stuff, you better have guys that can put the ball in play. So you can't – there's a trade-off. Obviously, those contact hitters with power, they're the stars of the game. They're hard to find. And contact hitter with power, who's a good defender – that's a, that, those guys cost a lot of money in the hard to acquire and trade, but you try to find a blend. Has, has there been any discussion about the trend of max effort versus feel and touch? When, when I was coming up through the game, it seemed like that there were more guys who understood the value of pitching like Anibal Sanchez right. than Mike Fultonavich. You, you had guys who, who were naturally prone to pitch like, you know, full time but it seemed like that when you get to the bullpen it's like that is the predominant type of guy you're trying to put together six closers 
who who pitch like Craig Kimbrell, you know, right. and 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 I've just never seen that much talent in you know to be able to do that. So as opposed to when you look at a bullpen that's been going 162 games, spring training, postseason, it's in, it those guys get burned up a lot quicker because they don't understand the value of taking a little bit off and putting a little bit on. Everything's max effort, so they end up burn up quicker, and they don't have the longevity that a guy that can take a little bit off, make the ball sink, make the ball cut, and then they, they tend to can pitch at 90% effort. But the, the power guys feel like they always have to be at 100% effort, so therefore they overthrow, and therefore they end up walking guys more because they're trying to feel like they've got to dominate the hitter. Whereas when you get a guy like Johnny Venters who can just sit there and just make the ball just, you know, die down in the zone, well, he's, his doesn't die because he throws so hard, yeah. but just sinks down the zone, he can get that easy ground ball out in five pitches, you know, uh, gets three outs in five pitches, whereas a power guy is trying to strike somebody out. So, therefore, you get this real high up and down in the bullpen. I was just curious if, if you guys discussed that because, you, you know, obviously, you're kind of dealt right now with what the previous group has given you. And, and, um, but I know if, if our trend is changing a little bit, then that certainly would be a place that that, that could help us. Yeah, no, I, I think there's definitely a lot of value and merit to what you're saying. I know I got to speak a little bit in spring training to John Smoltz, Tom Glavin. They talked about that exact same thing not having a max out on every pitch. I don't know that it's that it's going to change because of people will always be seduced by velocity, right? We're everything we're quantifying everything now. Speed off the bat, how far the ball's being hit. We talk about velocities on Twitter and so on. There's programs like Driveline and so on where guys their velocities right. get getting better. Um, arm strength in the game has gone up. I think the average the average fastball for a righty I think is like 92.9, which I can't imagine it was that 20 years ago. 88. Yeah, exactly. 90. So uh, guys are training harder, bigger, faster, stronger. And for obvious reasons, people want the swing and miss. Not fans, but from a front office standpoint, sure, you want a great defensive club, but if the ball won't get put in play, our chances of not having an issue are, are a lot a lot better. So um, I don't know that it's ever going to change. And teams are paying for that, whether it's in the draft, whether it's free agency and so on. Strikeout totals are big. Um and but I do think there's something to it, and from a health standpoint as well, guys that max out and so on. But the um, downside of that is you get a bullpen that you got to revamp in the middle of the season. Right. Yeah. Now I I do think part of it is used to because you, know, you talk to some of the guys that have been around a long time, and you know I remember you know you know Snitz told me this ma- many times. He's like, look, we didn't have guys that were down, you know, and we'll talk before before the game, and um, and again I don't know what it was like with you, Greg. I mean. Were you were guys ever down? Like we'll tell guys you're you're down, and Snit and I will talk about it. And sometimes the fans might not realize it, and we don't want the other side to know. But we might just say, hey, um, if AJ Minter has been up a million times or has pitched a bunch of games, and we don't want him to go three in a row, he could do it. But we'll lose today's game to hopefully keep him fresh for six months and then beyond, and keep him fresh for his entire career. So I think, and not having worked 20 years ago as a GM or AGM and so on. Um, I don't know how much that stuff was paid, you know, paid. A, everyone was on, on top of it, and that, that isn't a knock. Um, yeah. I wonder if we protect a little bit more today. Maybe it's, maybe it's not necessarily a good thing. Maybe it's a matter of, hey, you don't need to throw 100 miles an hour. You need to just command the ball, and you would be available three days in a row. And it doesn't mean we won't have someone pitch three days in a row, but we'll watch it, no doubt about it, back-to-backs. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll quantify the number. When a guy's hot and going, we'll actually have a number, how many they threw. They may throw. If a guy got hot and he only had a five-pitch uh, moment where 
he got hot, then that's not a big deal. But if he was getting hot and he threw 25 when he was hot in the bullpen, that's practically like throwing an inning in our minds, especially if you've done it twice, if you've, you've been up right. twice. So we're pretty on top of that stuff. And um, I think for the most part it's been successful in terms of health. Now, some guys could have pre-existing concerns and condition. A guy like Minter obviously had health conditions. John, Johnny's obviously had a bunch. Um, and I think it's a combination of things. No one's been able to solve it. But I think it's definitely something that needs to continue to be talked about. Well, we solved it yesterday over lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll continue to solve it. Right. But, hey, we got to be respectful of your time. we got a big event over at the Roxy. Um, great having you here. Um, appreciate it. We'll probably sure. catch up with you again. Anytime. We just talked about the winter meetings. We'll we'll probably be down there. Sure. We'd love to catch up. But uh, best of luck. Team's doing great. Yeah, we're we're pulling for you. And, obviously, if you win, we all, we all win. win. That's we right. Win. Yeah, and prepare. The next time we have Yawn, I've heard a rumor through the building that you play a mean bass guitar. So we're, we'll, it's, we'll, it's been a while, though. Well, we'll <laughs> delve, into, we'll delve yeah. into that on the next time. It's so. been a while. It's yeah. been a while. All right. <laughs> Thank appreciate you so much, it, Alex. All right, guys. Appreciate it. Right. Okay. Once again, thanks to Braves General Manager Alex Anthopoulos for joining us today. I, I think you probably enjoyed that conversation as much as we did, and we look forward to sitting down with him again in the future. But, hey, before we get off here today, as we're sitting here, the Braves return to the postseason tomorrow for the first time in five years. Extremely exciting time. I believe you said earlier this is just there's no, be there's no better time to be a Braves fan than right now. So – with it being our first trip to the postseason in five years, a lot of these guys, and we got a lot of young guys, a lot of these guys haven't experienced the postseason before. This will be their first time. So what I wanted to know from you as a player is what was it like your first time going into the postseason? I mean, do you how, first of all, how, how vividly do you recall it? And specifically, you know, what, what was it like the first time you pitched in the postseason? Yeah, I do. I do remember – some of the things that I was feeling at the time. And what's interesting is that I was the only rookie on the team in the 93 season. Now, we obviously called up some guys um, during the year, but the guys I was playing with, I mean, they had been in the World Series in 91. They'd been in World Series in 92. Not only just the World Series, but the Game 7 of the World Series. So they, they have had been at the height of stress. They, they have been through everything I think you could imagine as – stress in the postseason gone through all the different levels and, and of course remember back then we didn't have this extra round of playoffs right so we we were battling the Giants all year we end up winning this is 1993 we end up winning the division we were the Braves were in the National League West we end up winning 104 games the Giants win 103 they get beat by the Dodgers in the last game uh, we're watching them play the last game of the season after we beat the Rockies and so now we're waiting to see who is going to play the Phillies in the National League Championship. So we ended up uh, beating the Giants for the division. We go on to play the Phillies, and uh, we had pretty much beaten them all year. But what was interesting is that that was the crazy Phillies teams when you had, you know, Wild Thing, who was their closer, Mitch. And uh, Mitch, I can't, Williams, Williams Mitch Williams was the closer. And yeah, Truck, I mean, yeah. just the cast of carries Dalton was catching. And you had Holland at third and uh, just uh, Mickey Morandini at second. And um, just a really good Jim Eisenreich. So a really uh, interesting team. And so when you go into that, you go immediately into that game. And I was the closer at the time. So I was pitching late in the games and 
of course, Philly was a madhouse, and Atlanta, Fulton County Stadium, and we were selling it out. So there was a lot of hype, and I just remember this was the as much baseball I'd ever played because this was my first year in the big leagues. So I went from a full minor league season to a full winter ball season to a full major league season and a full playoff season. So I had literally been pitching my rear end off for over a year. And so I was a little tired. And, you know, then, you know, of course you mix in spring training where you're trying to make a team and make the team out of there. So I, I remember being a little tired. Okay. and uh, <laughs> Understandably so. And, and probably a little emotionally exhausted because you think about trying to, in the minor leagues, you're trying to make it. And then in spring training, you're trying to make a team. And then during the course of the season, you're trying to prove yourself as a young player and end up being the closer. And now you go into this whole new animal of a new season. It's called the postseason, where every single pitch means something. You know, during the season, you don't really sit there and focus and concentrate on every. You kind of zone out a little bit. For me, I'd get to the ballpark at 2.30. I wasn't pitching until 10 o'clock at night. And so you have some time to, but in the postseason, man, you're hanging on every pitch, you know, whether it's the national anthem and the lineups and the media and everything has got a lot of hoopla to it. And so you're, you're, you're hanging on every pitch and everybody else is hanging on every pitch. So the, the stress is there, even though these guys have been through it before. But for me, that was my first time. And so when you're really not your your best because it's been a long year and then all of a sudden you've got to somehow turn it up a notch it is really difficult to do and in in reality you don't want to try to turn it up a notch because you're already playing at a high level so when you try to turn it turn it up a notch you end up not being as good because it's impossible to it's like you can't do 110 percent you can only do 100 percent right so but in your mind sometimes somehow you think this means more I've got to concentrate more I've got to work harder I've got to make better pitches but you don't. You just you, you almost have to try to relax and do less so that you can be freed up. I, I always I think about nowadays I compete and play golf, you know, just because I enjoy it. It's not, it's not as physically taxing. When you think you got to, you know, when the wind's blowing at you and you think you got to hit right. harder yeah. to get it through the wind, you end up shanking and you're worse. But you're almost, you know, say when you try to do more, you – um, you do less, but when you do less, you do more. It's kind of one of those things. It's, it's kind of a weird thing when you're competing. But the, the postseason reminds it because you're battling emotional exhaustion, physical exhaustion. Then you're traveling. Then you're dealing with all the personal demands. But all that stuff kind of run through. I, I do remember – I don't remember after the 93, but after we won the World Series in 95, I remember having the flu and being sick for – I remember I just laid in bed for a week because I think I was just so exhausted – from that question, you know, 93, we just played the National League Championship game and then we didn't go on to the World Series. Toronto did, but uh, but I remember after we won it and going through the games against the Cleveland, it was just my body just had enough. It would just collapse. But the one thing I can say about the postseason, yeah, it's nice, the weather changes and it's cool and you, your body feels a little refreshed, but emotionally you take more of a hit because you're hanging on every single pitch. I think it's it's interesting you say that from a player's perspective because me just as a fan it is interesting. I mean I've watched I, God knows how many how much <laughs> baseball since I was seven years old. It's, it's hard to tell, and I'll sit there and I can enjoy a regular season game the same now. Watch every pitch just as I did when I was a little kid. 
But the second it becomes postseason, just how even as a fan, literally every single pitch, every single call that maybe in the regular season that doesn't quite go your way, that might irritate you a little bit, suddenly it is just you're jumping up, like whether you're at the stadium, you're up out of your seat, you're at home, you're jumping up out of your couch, you're yelling things you shouldn't be yelling at your TV, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, or in my case, the last postseason game I think I attended was the, the infield fly game at, mm. at Turner Field. So that, there were yeah. certainly some emotions and some things being said that night that shouldn't have been, I mean, shouldn't ha- have been saying. Yeah, <laughs> and, and how many plays do you see that the ball is just a hair foul? Oh, I know. You know, or it's just, just that gas from the whole crowd is just that, oh, yeah. you know. I mean, it's like it happens more often. I, I can I name you more of those plays from the, my postseason days, and whether it was 93 or 95 or 96 or – you know, or 2,000, I can name you those plays more so than I can a hit or a strikeout or whatever. It's kind of like right. – because they're game-changing. Right. Because when every everything, every pitch and every swing, every bunt uh, means something, every walk. And I, we were talking about this the other day. We were playing the Yankees, and um, I was um, – that Graham Lloyd, the left-handed pitcher for the Yankees, who nobody – I don't even know if anybody remembers his name – uh, Braves fans wise, but he single-handedly crushed us in the 96 World Series because every time Fred McGriff got up, and he got up a lot in critical situations, they brought that stinking left-hander <laughs> in, and he got him out every single time. And it was amazing. And I don't think he had a very long career. He may only have been with the Yankees for a couple years, but he, he I thought, was the MVP because every time we had a chance to change the game – you know, because we beat them pretty bad in the first couple games. But after that, every time Fred came up and a chance to, to really impact the game, they brought that guy in and uh, he got Fred out. It is interesting, especially in postseason and in recent years, watching like the guys that – not always, but the guys who a lot of times seem to end, end up winning the series MVP. It isn't always – it isn't always right. your marquee player. It's a guy that just steps up at the right time. Well, let's look at uh, Eddie Perez. Mark uh, Lemke. Mark Lemke should – well, yep. I almost said should have. Could have <laughs> been the, the World Series MVP in 91. I mean, those are the guys that – I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I think uh, Edgar Renteria won it with the Giants mm-hmm. a few years back. He's yeah. the one that comes to mind. And all good players. All good players, but not your – but not the ones – they're not the ones that you're going to be featured in the yeah. the big postseason national commercials and all that kind and of stuff. And that, that's also exciting to me when I'm, I'm – when I start watching, you know, the game tonight, you have one of the wild card games mm-hmm. uh, on tonight for the well, the National League wild card games tonight, tomorrow night. Um, when the podcast this podcast comes out, we'll have the uh, American League wild card game. But it'll be interesting to see who are the heroes. Mm-hmm. And to me, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing what's going to happen with this Braves team when they go out to LA, and then when they come back here, who's going to step up and and kind of be that guy. So that's always fun and exciting. Yeah. All right, real quick now, when you – I mean, you described the first couple trips of the postseason. Once you'd done it a couple times, was the was was there still that exhaustion there coming back or were you a little bit more prepared for it, body used to it, or is it still just – there's still got to be some added pressure, I would think. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any way you get used to that. Well, and what was so hard about the first year in 93, like I said, we didn't even go to the World Series, but because I had been – full season and then going right into winter ball and then going into spring training and go I didn't have a break. Right. And you know, you can only throw many pitch so many pitches. But I think once you learn to expect expectations are a little um they help a little bit because you kinda understand it. But uh, there's no way of getting around it. It is just exhausting. And by the time you end up at the end you know, 
God willing, we end up at the end of uh, October and we just won the World Series. We'll have some. We have some tired puppies on that team. But, I mean, <laughs> I think they were tired. You know, the bullpen was tired about a month ago. Right. Yeah. And uh, but uh, hopefully they'll get they'll get a um, kind of a. I don't think Acuna. I don't feel like Acuna is. is uh... Well, he's 20. I think he's got well, more energy than most sure. of us. I, yeah, I, if I was 20, I wouldn't be getting tired yeah, either. I don't think he's one. That, <laughs> he's one I'm, I would expect most guys, not specifically speaking to our team, just most players in general would be that first postseason is just a little bit of a different animal and you want to see how they react. He's one that I'm just kind of like, I, I'm not even that worried. However he plays, I don't think it's – if he doesn't play well, I don't think it's going to be because of the pressure of, of the situation. It'll just be because, you know, we just – they bested him. But – uh Boy, it it's just exciting to be sitting here talking about this. I mean, however it however it pans out, it it just feels so good as a Braves fan to be talking about well, the Braves like in the we, postseason again. Yeah, and like what we said, it's it's house money. I mean, whatever happens is all bonus, and it's been a bonus for a while. Now our expectations are changing a little bit. We know we have a good team. We know we are capable of continuing on in this postseason. And now we expect that we're going to play well. So um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that's just the nature of being a Braves fan. You know, I work for the Braves, but I'm I'm a fan too. You know, I've been wanting to watch this team play all year, and I'm and I'm going to continue to watch them because they're exciting. Same here, and uh, we'll we'll see what happens. And regardless of what happens, this much is sure: we'll be back here next week, next Wednesday, on Behind the Braves for the that's third right. episode. So thank you all for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next week. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.